You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. An individual named Chris McCandless grew up in Virginia, had a wealthy family, went to college, ended up graduating college in 1990. And instead of wanting to follow in the footsteps of his family, he decided to put that aside. He didn't want an easy life. He didn't want the suburban life. He decided a life of more self-reliance, of more of a simple life, to live off the land, to figure out things on his own. So instead of taking a job, living in Virginia, he decided to go live in the wilderness of Alaska. He studied, he prepared, he got his gear, figured out how he's going to live off the land, how he's going to forage for food, how he's going to make this work, to live by himself in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. So he got there, tried to figure out where he was going to camp, actually found an abandoned bus in the middle of nowhere, who knows how it got there, and decided to make that his base camp. At first he was doing well. He was finding berries, he was planting things, he was hunting, he was trying to make it work. But then he was struck by the reality, just the brutal nature of the Alaskan winter. And he did his best, but over time he was not able to get enough nutrition. He was too far away and too weak to be able to go for help. So Chris McCann's ended up starving to death in that abandoned bus in the middle of Alaska. What I want to talk about today is self-reliance, something that Chris McCandless trusted in, and it failed him, and it ended up killing him. Today we'll be in Joshua chapter 9, looking at examples of self-reliance and how it is not only dangerous if you're trying to live in an abandoned bus in the middle of winter in Alaska, but for us as well. As you're turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, Joshua is closer to the front of your Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, we have some available for free in the back for you. But as you're turning there, to give you a little bit of context, we are not in Galatians, which is our normal series that Pastor Eric's been preaching through for the last few months. Joshua finds in the story of the people of Israel. The people of Israel are a people that God has chosen, beginning with Abraham, not because of anything special with Abraham, but because he said, I am going to be your God, you will be my people. I'm going to make of you a great nation. We've actually been able to look at the life of Abraham quite a bit in the book of Galatians with Pastor Eric. And those promises that he made to Abraham, he repeated and kept with Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. And the people of Israel grew to be a large nation, though through a series of events were under slavery in the land of Egypt. God then, keeping his promises to the people, raised up another leader, Moses, to lead them out through miracles, the 10 plagues that maybe you're familiar with, out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, splitting the 
going into the wilderness. And during this time, these promises are expanding. Not only is God promising that he's going to make of them a great people, he's saying, I'm going to give you a land, a place flowing with milk and honey where you can rest, where, again, I will be your God and you will be my people. They spend more time in the wilderness due to some of their sin, take a detour for 40 years, but then finally, it's time. Moses is passed off the scene and now it's to his successor, Joshua. His second in command is now going to take leadership and responsibility for the people of Israel as they go into this new land to claim it as their own. Now God has given them some parameters how this is supposed to be done. As they go into the promised land, God has told them, you actually have to clear this out. This isn't clear land, there's no one, it's not that there's no one there, there's people living there, there's inhabitants there. These inhabitants, we'll call them the Canaanites, were a wicked, wicked people. These were pagans that served false gods. These were pagans that involved themselves in sexual deviancy up to and including bestiality. These are evil people, wicked people that were serving false gods and actually practicing child sacrifice, killing their children on altars for these gods. And God is very clear why he wanted the people of Israel to clear these people out, to destroy these people that were in Canaan. It was because if Israel was to go in and to do business with them, to rub shoulders with them, to exchange daughters in marriage with them, the influence over time to the hearts of the people of Israel, they were going to be drawn away from their God. Drawn away from a way of life and protection that they had in God to a way of wickedness and destruction that they would have in the sin if they started practicing the things that the Canaanites were practicing. So that's the context. That's where we're at. In the book of Joshua, we're now looking at the conquest as the people of Israel. All these promises that they've been given by God that they've heard from their parents, their grandparents, for we are going to have our own place. We are God's people. These promises are finally now coming true. They can see it. They've actually physically seen the promised land now. They're coming into it. As I said before, I want to look at the subject of self-reliance. We're going to look at self-reliance here in Joshua chapter 9, not only in the lives of the Canaanites, but also in the lives of the Israelites. So as you open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, Please read along with me, verses 1 and 2. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, and the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, heard of this, this being some recent victories that God had given the people of Israel, specifically in the cities of Jericho and Ai, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. God and his people are coming into this promised land. The people that live here, the Canaanites, they've heard stories. They've heard of what happened in Egypt. They heard of this million plus group of people that have been living in the wilderness for the last 40 years that God has miraculously been providing for. They've heard of the victories over Jericho and Ai. They know of their might. And they have a choice now. How are they going to respond to this God and his people that are coming in? Are they going to respond with humility and repentance? Or are they going to respond with rejection? The first point that we see here in our first two verses is a self-reliant response to God in the form of brawn, or their power, their might. The kings here, this is 
this is a very old time, so we don't have like a federal government that's over this entire place. It's just a bunch of tribes in their cities, maybe a few cities clumped together. But all these kings come together and are like, we don't like what is happening here. We don't like what is coming in here. Yes, we've heard stories. Yes, they have a God, but we have a God too. So we're going to muster our troops. We're going to get our swords together. We're going to bring our chariots together, what we have, and we're going to fight against this thing. We're going to push against this thing. They responded to God in self-reliance in their might, believing that their hands will save them, that they are stronger, that they can do this. But this is the God of the Bible. This is the God of miracles. This is the God that created the universe, standing toe-to-toe with God and win every time. This is a losing battle. We, self, we see self-reliance in the Canaanites, not only in their brawn, but also them believing in their brains, them trusting in their brains. Their smarts, their wit. We see this in verses 3 through 13. We turn from the Canaanites to a specific people that lived in Canaan, the Gibeonites. Read along with me in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for the donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all the provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to all the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? Basically, you didn't ask my que- answer my question. Answer me now. Verse 9. They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. Stop there. Okay, so in that first two verses, we saw the, the Canaanites, them gathering together, them putting their forces together, we're just going to fight against us. We're just going to use full force against God. The Gibeonites see this. They know what the plan is, but they decide, mm, we're going to actually do something different. We agree with you. We don't want them coming in here. This judgment seems scary and something that we need to do something about, but instead of trusting in our strength, we're going to trust in our ability to kind of outwit this to find a loophole. What is something that we can do? And they did, their, they did their homework. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, when God is telling the people of Israel prior to them getting to the promised land that they need to go clear this place out, he actually gives them some parameters on making treaties. He tells them, people that are local, the people that are going to be within your immediate vicinity, do not make treaties with them. He tells them that clearly. But he also gives them the ability, he says, those that are far away, peoples that are far away that are not near you, you can make treaties with. It seems that the Gibeonites knew of this. 
they knew of this law that God had given them. And they were playing that line. Look, we're not from here. If we, can, if we can figure out a way to trick the Israelites into believing that we're not from here, that we're actually from far away, then maybe we can get in a treaty with them. So they get their glee club together and they dress up to put on the show. They go to their closets, they go to their sheds, they find all the old stuff that they probably should have thrown away but were just holding on to. They find the food that had been that they were holding to give to their pigs or something like that that just wasn't even good for eating anymore. And then they take the short day's travel to where Israel is, dressed up as if, as if they'd come from a long way away. And they try to make a treaty with the Israelites. Again, they are trusting in their intellect, their planning, that that's going to save them, that their brains can save them from the judgment, the coming judgment that is coming. Instead of responding with humility and repentance, they respond with, Mm, I, th I think I can figure this out. Sometimes we make this plan here today as well. Maybe we believe that God exists. Maybe we do believe that judgment is coming, but man, humility to God, accepting his authority, repenting of my sin, that's just a little too much. And actually, I'm pretty sure that once I get to the next life, after I die, I can work this out with God. He just needs to get to know me. If I've got five minutes with God, I can plead my case and I can make this work. Or I can find a loophole in the law as the Gibeonites were trying to do. And I can figure this out for myself. There's a rejection of God and a self-reliance both on the brawn and on their brains. Now, for you, those who are Christians here this morning, you may be thinking, yeah, I mean, I see how you get there if you're not a Christian, but that's, that's not where I'm at. I actually know God. I claim to have a relationship with God, and I'm actually fine with those things. I don't do this. There's no self-reliance in my heart. Well, let's look at Israel. Let's bring this home a little closer to home for you. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Now we're turning from the response of the Canaanites to now the response of the Israelites. Verse 7, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? Skip down to verse 14 with me. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. We looked at the two categories of brawn and brain with the Canaanites. I want to look at those same two categories with the Israelites here now. First, believing in their brawn. Verses 7 and 8. Man, it seems like the Israelites are doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? They're asking the right questions. They're saying, hold up. We know that we can't make treaties with those that are close to us. We need to do our due diligence here and make sure that, they're, that they don't live within our vicinity. If they're from our land, then maybe that's okay. We can make this treaty with us. They're asking the right questions, right? So why is this on Israel? How did they do something wrong? Well, the Bible's clear on that. In verse 14, it says, they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. They did not seek his counsel. And what that does, it exposes what the Israelites were trusting in. They were no longer trusting 
in God, the God that had brought them out of Egypt, the God that had taken care of them in the wilderness, the God that had brought them across the Jordan, that gave them these miraculous victories in Jericho and Ai. No, we have the rules now, God, thank you. And we're going to trust in them and in our ability to play those rules out, our ability to just figure this out on our own, to follow the rules well enough to protect ourselves, to gain security by us doing the right things. My good works will save me. I don't need you anymore. Thank you for getting me to this point, for real. But now you've given me the rules that I'm supposed to live by, and as long as I apply them correctly, I can keep myself safe. This indicates a self-righteousness. This isn't, this isn't trust in God. This is trust in self and ability to obey these rules that God has given. This isn't security in the God of the Bible. This is security in self. Believing in our works to save us leads to a false gospel. That's how this is dangerous for us. Because then instead of believing that we need God to save us, which is absolutely true, then we begin to believe that we have enough, that we know enough, that we can do enough to provide security, comfort, and what we need for ourselves. There could be nothing further from the truth. And believing in this false gospel will also lead to anxiety and burnout. Where does the anxiety come from? Well, the anxiety comes from now everything being on you. You have to know the rules. You have to apply the rules. You have to obey the rules. All of these things you have to do to make sure that you're okay. Friends, that is a weight that you cannot bear. You cannot be good enough. You can't keep the rules well enough. And it will end in anxiety because if I fail, then it's on me. If I can't keep myself safe, if I can't even keep my family safe by what I'm doing, it just, it takes over your brain. We're not meant to live this way. God calls us to trust in him, not ourselves. It also can lead to burnout. There's just too much. Man, this anxiety that I'm feeling, I don't know what my other options are, but I know what I'm feeling right now is too much. I hate this. I hate the way I feel. I can't do this anymore. And we let go. We let go of everything. when the initial problem was we're putting our trust in the wrong thing. We're trusting ourselves. We're guilty of self-reliance instead of seeking God for his will and his counsel. That's trust in the brawn. Now let's look at the brain in the lives of Israel. Verses 14 through 15, let's read those again in the middle of chapter 9. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Let me read that again. So the men took some of the provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Israel had confidence in their assessment of the situation, not God's. So before, when it was the rules trying to figure out, okay, are we obeying the right rules or are we not? That was confidence in their ability to apply the rules, not confidence in God. Now what we see here is a confidence in their assessment of the situation, not God. So they're taking their circumstances. They're taking the situation around them, what they can see. So remember, Gibeonites are standing there in front of them. Like, look, my clothes, my shoes, they're all busted. My wineskins have holes in them. My bread is all crumbly. Of course I've come from a far place. Israel's like, Israelites are like, well, that looks right. It seems like it checks out. And again, at first blush, it feels like, why, can, why should we blame them for this? This isn't on Israel, right? They did the right things. It seems like an honest mistake. 
But again, the Bible is telling us that that is not true because they did not seek the counsel of the Lord in this. They're not trusting in their God any longer. They were trusting in their knowledge to save them. Syndicates an arrogance on the side of Israel that I can figure this out that I don't need God in this. The big things maybe, but this little thing, man, we can figure this out. It seems like a slam dunk case. This is obvious for us. I'm gonna take my circumstances and I'm just gonna figure out what it is. Friends, this can lead to a misunderstanding of God. This is oftentimes what we do as Christians. We take our circumstances and we read into them more than we should read into them. When we have, when we're offered extra cream in our coffee in the morning at the coffee shop, and we're like, man, this day there's some awesome stuff that's going to happen. Or when the phone call comes in at 3.33 p.m., we read something at the time of it. We look for these things and circumstances to try to confirm the things that we feel or the things that we hope are true. Our circumstances are at best secondary confirmations of what is true. They should never be used as a primary source of truth. Let me say that again. Our circumstances and our situations at best are secondary confirmations of what is true, but never a primary source of truth. Now your pushback may be, well, the Israelites, they could pray, and man, they were hearing the actual audible voice of God back then. Like God was coming down on Mount Sinai. He, there was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Like it was a different time, man. When I pray, God doesn't write it in the sky for me. He doesn't talk to me like that. He's not as direct as he was with the Israelites. Well, that's true. But you have two things that the Israelites did not have. One, if you're a Christian today, you have two things that the Israelites did not have. You have the completed word of God, the will of God sitting in your lap right now. Secondly, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling within you to guide, to direct, to convict, to teach you the word. So, do you have a phone a friend to God and he writes it in the sky for you? No. However, you have what he has given you, which is the word and the Holy Spirit and trust in those things. We can pray to our God and he answers us. My wife and I enjoy a TV show called The Office. It's a show about an office. For those of you that aren't familiar, don't worry, I'll contextualize it for you. There's, in, uh, in one of the episodes, there's characters named Michael and Jim. And Michael and Jim are trying to figure out how to work this thing out. Michael's feeling a lot of stress because he's recently got a lot more responsibility in his job as a manager of the office. Jim, however, has a family that's growing. He wants to make more money. He wants to take care of them. He wants to support them. So they're trying to figure out what do we do here? How do we make everybody happy here? And their boss comes up with the idea of, hey, why don't we do co-managers? Michael, we're gonna give you the responsibilities of the big picture stuff. And Jim, we're gonna give you the day-to-day. How's that sound to you? Like, that sounds pretty good, actually. We're gonna split responsibilities, we'll figure this out. We both kind of get what we want. We get a lessening of stress for Michael. We get more money and a pay raise for Jim. Like, this is gonna be great. Well, that doesn't end up working out. As my grandfather used to say, anything with more than one head is a monster. 
Who's in charge? Whose responsibility is, really is this? Is this big picture? Is this day to day? Who do I answer to? Who would I go to? Who signs this? It's just a mess. Friends, sometimes I think we as Christians can try to be co-managers with God of our lives. God, I'm going to go ahead and give you the big picture stuff, and I'm going to take the day-to-day. So when I'm getting married, when I'm trying to decide, am I going to like, link myself up with this person for the rest of my life? All right, I'll, I'll, I'll seek your will in that. Is this really what you wanted me to do? But man, the little stuff, my everyday, How should I respond in this relationship? How should I spend my money? How should I spend my time? Where do I live? What job do I have? Those day-to-day things, I've, I've got that, God. I want to leave the big picture with you, but I've got the day-to-day. Friends, don't live like that. Again, that is self-reliance. That's belief and trust that we have the strength, that we have the smarts to figure it out. That is not true. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Very familiar verses say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him. Let me read that again. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. Not just the big picture. The day to day. That is what we are called to as Christians, to trust Him in all things, not ourselves. Now, some of you be like, man, I feel like I'm doing the co-manager thing with God. I feel like it's working out okay. I call him when I need him, and everything else just kind of seems to work out. Well, let's look at the reliance played out. Let's go to the second half of Joshua chapter 9. We talked about the Canaanites first and the self-reliant responses, and then the Israelites. We're going to flip that order now. We're going to look at the Israelites first and then the Canaanites, the Gibeonites in specific because that's how the Bible has ordered it for us. Please read along with me, verses 16 through 21. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. Well, that didn't take very long, did it? And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. The people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and jars of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So the Gibeonites come in. They do their kabuki theater thing. They trick the Israelites into this treaty. Now what are they supposed to do? They find out that they've been tricked, that they've been hoodwinked. The Gibeonites lied to them. Now they've got this contract that they've signed with them. What do we do now? Well, God has told us to destroy all these people in this land, but we made this covenant. So how are we supposed to be obedient to God now? Well, the leaders 
of Israel rightly recognized that trying to fix a mistake, trying to fix a sin with another sin is never a good idea. That's always wrong. Trying to get out of consequences for something we've done, trying to fix a sin that we've had before, never justifies a secondary sin on top of that. We practice that all the time. When we get caught in a lie, what do we do to try to get out of it? We lie more, right? Every single one of us has experience in that. Instead of, instead of just owning the truth and letting that one, one lie be a lie, then we just stack the sins on top of that, trying to get ourselves out of that. The Israelite leadership did not do that. They did the right thing. They made an oath to this people. They promised, they swore by the Lord their God. So for them to renege on this, for them to back out, would, to be, would be to lie bearing false witness to them, getting into an oath and then backing out of it. Secondarily, it would, be, it would cause a bad reputation for both Israel and God. They said, we cannot do this because we've given our word, because we've given an oath. We cannot go back on this. Friends, have you ever tied yourself to something or someone that limits your service to God? whether worldly possessions, ungodly relationships, whatever those things are, usually when we take, sometimes when we take charge of things, we make our own decisions, we're self-reliant in these ways, the same as Israel was, then man, we link ourselves up to things that we should not link ourselves up to. And while we can still honor God and serve God, I'm not saying that those things take away completely our ability to do that, it does hamper our ability, it does lessen what we can do. If I have filled my life with all these responsibilities and all these things outside of service for God, then all of my time, guess what it's used for? For all of these things that I now have responsibility for. In the same way, Israel, because they've linked themselves to the Gibeonites, it now stops them from fulfilling what God had for them originally. With ungodly relationships, what are we doing with our time? Again, I'm not saying that we should not have relationships with non-Christians. We absolutely should have. Paul is clear on this in 1 Corinthians. We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world. But as we're auditing our time, how much time we're spending, what type of time we're spending, and who we're spending that time with, I think J.C. Ryle gives us a good way of thinking through it. You'll have this quote up on the screen for you. Nothing perhaps man's character more than the company he keeps. We catch the ways and tone of those we live and talk with, and unhappily get harm far more easily than good. Disease is infectious, but health is not. Now, if a professing Christian deliberately chooses to be intimate with those who are not friends of God and who cling to the world, his soul is sure to take harm. It is hard enough to serve Christ under any circumstances in such a world as this, but it is doubly hard to do it if we are friends of the thoughtless and ungodly. Mistakes in friendship or marriage engagements are the whole reason why some have entirely ceased to grow. Evil communications corrupt good manners, and the friendship of the world is enmity with God, quoting 1 Corinthians 15 and James 4.4. 4. Now let me be very clear on what I think J.C. Rowell is saying and what I want us to pick up and what he's not saying. Again, he is not saying that we should not have friends and relationships with people that are non-Christians. That's not at all what he's saying. 
But there is a phrase in there that I think is incredibly helpful. And he's saying those that we, are, that we deliberately choose to be intimate with. Who are we spending the majority of our time with? Are they exhorting us to love and good deeds? Or are we just fighting against temptation the entire time we're with them? Our best friends, if they're non-Christians, that's not totally wrong thing, but I, I do think it should cause you to question, man, if the most important thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus Christ and my best friend does not share that with me, what exactly are we sharing? What is it that we have in common here? We don't cut off those relationships, but we do measure them differently. We do look at them differently because of the influence that is coming in. We're careful with what we align ourselves with. We've looked at self-reliance played out in the life of Israel. Now let's look at self-reliance played out in the Gibeonites. Now before we get here, I need to explain something or feel like I should explain something that might be a little complicated, but stay with me. In Joshua chapter 9, trying to interpret this chapter, it gets a little complicated with what to do with the Gibeonites. And there are godly scholars of the Bible that fall into two camps with what to do with them. The first camp is Gibeon, wants to align themselves with the people of Israel and they actually find salvation or safety or security in the nation of Israel, even though maybe their, their methodology was a little wrong, in the end they were folded kind of into the family of God and they were given protection. That's interpretation number one. Interpretation number two is this. The Gibeonites were sneaky and they deceived the Israelites and they did not receive actually security and safety in them. They actually received a lifetime of slavery, which we're going to see here in the last few verses. Myself personally, at least for today, maybe will be different tomorrow, but myself personally, I land in the second camp. And I want to give you a quick why. And why I want to do this is not just to information dump on you, but because it directly influences the way that we read and we apply this next passage of scripture that we're about to get into. So my reasons for taking that second interpretation on the Gibeonites are these. One, the Gibeonites are obviously deceptive. It's premeditated. They double down on it as far as the lies. When they're questioned, they just keep going, keep going. And number two, when the Israelites are asking, why can't we destroy them? Why can't we destroy them? In the verses 16 through 21, the leadership respond not while they're seeking asylum or they are calling God their God now. It's no, because we made this oath with them. Now we're kind of stuck with this. And third, I think the most powerful and important reason is what we're going to read here. Joshua actually tells the people, the Gibeonites, because of what they've done, they are cursed. Now, if they were safe and they were folded in and there was security now for the Gibeonites, I do not at all think that Joshua would call this people cursed because of what they've done. Some pushback might be Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, if you're familiar with the spies, when they come to Jericho and Rahab, they meet her and she aligns herself with Israel and finds security and safety and salvation with them. Well, the Gibeonites not the same thing. I think they're different. And the reasons are Rahab recognizes God. She says he's the God of heaven and God of earth. And her attitude and the words she uses seem completely different from what the Gibeonites have here in chapter 9. So, with that in mind, let me move into our last little section here. Self-reliance played out 
in the life of the Gibeonites. Let's read verses 23 through 27. Joshua summoned them, that's the Gibeonites, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water by the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and jars of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. The Gibeonites chose to trust in their ability to find a loophole in God's law. There's a way that we can figure this out. We have no problem believing that God exists. This seems real. The threat that we're experiencing, judgment is coming. But instead of responding with the humility and calling God God, going to God's commands and trying to find a loophole, how can we outwit God? How can we run around God? How can we find a back door into this? And it ends for the Gibeonites in lifelong servitude. Now they are stuck while the Israelites can't destroy them because of the oath that they made. The Gibeonites are not stuck in a flourishing life. They're stuck in a life of servitude. There's no freedom for them. There's no salvation for them. Self-reliance is a very sneaky thing. For those in the room that are non-Christians that would not claim Jesus Christ is their Savior. Please hear me when I say the Bible is clear. We cannot outfight or outpunch God. We cannot outwit or outsmart God. Acts 4.12 tells us that there is salvation in one name and one name alone, and that is Jesus Christ. His work, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, that we can have salvation. We no longer need to rely on ourselves. We accept what Jesus has done for us, and we're free of that. For those of you that are Christians in the room, do you look at the Bible trying to find loopholes in it? Are you trying to figure out a way that you can have your cake and eat it too? If we are constantly reading the Bible trying to figure out, is this sin? How close to the line can I get up to it before I touch the sin line? That's a red flag. You're reading the Bible like a lawyer, not like a Christian. No offense to the lawyers in the room. Instead of asking the question, is this sin or not? Can I smoke weed? Is it really wrong? Is it really wrong to marry a non-Christian? Is it really wrong to cheat on my taxes? Is that really sin? I mean, the government seems like they're doing some bad things with my money. Or, man, this person really loves and I really love this. If, if this was so bad, I wouldn't feel this good about this decision, right? Is weed really that long? Wrong, excuse me? 
in my home by myself and not hurting anybody else. Like, it's just what I choose to do with my body. I'm not trying to give you a determination on those three scenarios. What I'm trying to do is change your mind on how you approach those questions. Instead of approaching, is this sin or is this not sin? Ask yourself the question, does this glorify God or not? Go back to the word. Listen to the Holy Spirit. That takes practice. And pray. Glorify God in what you do. Rely on him, his wisdom, and his salvation and not your own. Stop looking for loopholes. Stop being self-reliant. And as cliche as this sounds, start being Jesus-reliant. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.